This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche Chapter 5 Morality as the Enemy of Nature 1. There is a time when all passions are simply fatal in their action, when they wreck their victims with the weight of their folly. And there is a later period, a very much later period, when they marry with the spirit, when they spiritualize themselves. Formerly, owing to the stupidity inherent in passion, men waged war against passion itself. Men pledged themselves to annihilate it. All ancient moral mongers were unanimous on this point. Il faut tuer les passions. The most famous formula for this stands in the New Testament, in that Sermon on the Mount, where, let it be said incidentally, things are by no means regarded from a height. It is said there, for instance, with an application to sexuality, If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. Fortunately, no Christian acts in obedience to this precept. To annihilate the passions and desires simply on account of their stupidity, and to obviate the unpleasant consequences of their stupidity, seems to us today merely an aggravated form of stupidity. We no longer admire those dentists who extract teeth simply in order that they may not ache again. On the other hand, it will be admitted with some reason that on the soil from which Christianity grew, the idea of the spiritualization of passion could not possibly have been conceived. The early church, as everyone knows, certainly did wage war against the intelligent in favor of the poor in spirit. In these circumstances, how could the passions be combated intelligently? The church combats passion by means of excision of all kinds. Its practice, its remedy, is castration. It never inquires, how can a desire be spiritualized, beautified, deified? In all ages, it has laid the weight of discipline in the process of extirpation, the extirpation of sensuality, pride, lust of dominion, lust of property, and revenge. But to attack the passions at the roots means attacking life itself at its source. The method of the church is hostile to life. 2. The same means, castration and extirpation, are instinctively chosen for waging war against a passion by those who are too weak of will, too degenerate, to impose some sort of moderation upon it. By those natures who, to speak in metaphor, and without metaphor, need la trappe, or some kind of ultimatum of war, a gulf set between themselves and a passion. Only degenerates find radical methods indispensable. Weakness of will, or more strictly speaking, the inability not to react to a stimulus, 
is in itself simply another form of degeneracy. Radical and moral hostility to sensuality remains a suspicious symptom. It justifies one in being suspicious of the general state of one who goes to such extremes. Moreover, that hostility and hatred reach their height only when such natures no longer possess enough strength of character to adopt the radical remedy to renounce their inner Satan. Look at the whole history of the priests, the philosophers, and the artists as well. The most poisonous diatribes against the senses have not been said by the impotent nor by the ascetics, but by those impossible ascetics, by those who found it necessary to be ascetics. 3. The spiritualization of sensuality is called love. It is a great triumph over Christianity. Another triumph is our spiritualization of hostility. It consists in the fact that we are beginning to realize very profoundly the value of having enemies. In short, that with them we are forced to do and to conclude precisely the reverse of what we previously did and concluded. In all ages the Church wished to annihilate its enemies. We, the immoralists and antichrists, see our advantage in the survival of the Church. Even in political life, hostility has now become more spiritual, much more cautious, much more thoughtful, and much more moderate. Almost every party sees its self-preservative interests in preventing the opposition from going to pieces, and the same applies to politics on a grand scale. A new creation, more particularly, like the new empire, has more need of enemies than friends. Only as a contrast does it begin to feel necessary. Only as a contrast does it become necessary. And we behave in precisely the same way to the inner enemy. In this quarter, too, we have spiritualized enmity. In this quarter, too, we have understood its value. A man is productive only in so far as he is rich in contrasted instincts. He can remain young only on condition that his soul does not begin to take things easy and to yearn for peace. Nothing has grown more alien to us than that old desire, the peace of the soul, which is the aim of Christianity. Nothing could make us less envious than the moral cow and the plump happiness of a clean conscience. The man who has renounced war has renounced a grand life. In many cases, of course, peace of the soul is merely a misunderstanding. It is something very different which has failed to find a more honest name for itself. Without either circumlocution or prejudice, I will suggest a few cases. Peace of the soul may, for instance, be the sweet effulgence of rich animality in the realm of morality, or religion, or the first presage of weariness, the first shadow that evening, every kind of evening, is wont to cast or a sign that the air is moist, and that winds are blowing up from the south, or unconscious gratitude for a good digestion, 
sometimes called brotherly love, or the serenity of the convalescent, on whose lips all things have a new taste, and who bides his time, or the condition which follows upon a thorough gratification of our strongest passion, the well-being of unaccustomed satiety, or the senility of our will, of our desires, and of our vices, or laziness, coaxed by vanity into togging itself out in a moral garb, or the ending of a state of long suspense and of agonizing uncertainty, by a state of certainty, of even terrible certainty, or the expression of ripeness and mastery in the midst of a task, of a creative work, of a production, of a thing willed, the calm breathing that denotes that freedom of will has been attained. Who knows? Maybe the twilight of the idols is only a sort of peace of the soul. 4. I will formulate a principle. All naturalism in morality, that is to say, every sound morality, is ruled by a life instinct. Any one of the laws of life is fulfilled by the definite canon, Thou shalt, thou shalt not, and any sort of obstacle or hostile element in the road of life is thus cleared away. Conversely, the morality which is antagonistic to nature, that is to say, almost every morality that has been taught, honored, and preached hitherto, is directed precisely against the life instincts. It is a condemnation, now secret, now blatant and impudent, of these very instincts. Inasmuch as it says, God sees into the heart of man, it says nay to the profoundest and most superior desires of life, and takes God as the enemy of life. The saint in whom God is well pleased is the ideal eunuch. Life terminates where the kingdom of God begins. 5. Admitting that you have understood the villainy of such a mutiny against life as that which has become almost sacrosanct in Christian morality, you have fortunately understood something besides, and that is the futility, the fictitiousness, the absurdity, and the falseness of such a mutiny. For the condemnation of life by a living creature is, after all, but the symptom of a definite kind of life. The question as to whether the condemnation is justified, or the reverse, is not even raised. In order even to approach the problem of the value of life, a man would need to be placed outside life, and, moreover, know it as well as one, as many, as all, in fact, who have lived it. These are reasons enough to prove to us that this problem is an inaccessible one to us. When we speak of values, we speak under the inspiration and through the optics of life. Life itself urges us to determine values. Life itself values through us. 
when we determine values. From which it follows that even that morality which is antagonistic to life, and which conceives God as the opposite and the condemnation of life, is only a valuation of life. Of what life? Of what kind of life? But I have already answered this question. It is the valuation of declining, of enfeebled, of exhausted, and of condemned life. Morality, as it has been understood hitherto, as it was finally formulated by Schopenhauer in the words, the denial of the will to life, is the instinct of degeneration itself, which converts itself into an imperative. It says, perish. It is the death sentence of men who are already doomed. 6. Let us at last consider how exceedingly simple it is on our part to say, man should be thus and thus. Reality shows us a marvelous wealth of types, and a luxuriant variety of forms and changes. And yet the first wretch of a moral loafer that comes along cries, No! Man should be different! He even knows what man should be like does this sanctimonious prig. He draws his own face on the wall and declares, Ecce homo! But even when the moralist addresses himself only to the individual, and says, Thus and thus shouldst thou be, he still makes an ass of himself. The individual in his past and future is a piece of fate, one law the more, one necessity the more for all that is to come and is to be to say to him, change thyself, is tantamount to saying that everything should change, even backwards as well. Truly these have been consistent moralists. They wished man to be different, i.e. virtuous. They wished him to be after their own image, that is to say, sanctimonious humbugs. And to this end, they denied the world, no slight form of insanity, no modest form of immodesty. Morality, in so far as it condemns per se, and not out of any aim, consideration, or motive of life, is a specific error, for which no one should feel any mercy, a degenerate idiosyncrasy, that has done an unalterable amount of harm. We others, we immoralists, on the contrary, have opened our hearts wide to all kinds of comprehension, understanding, and approbation. We do not deny readily. We glory in saying yea to things. Our eyes have opened ever wider and wider to that economy which still employs, and knows how to use to its own advantage, all that which the sacred craziness of priests and the morbid reason in priests rejects. To that economy in the law of life which draws its own advantage even out of the repulsive race of bigots, the priests and the virtuous, what advantage? But we ourselves, we immoralists, are the reply to this question. End chapter 5
This recording is in the public domain.